Okay, good evening and thank you very much for coming out to this event. Um, this is the Forum for Philosophies event on the ethical human. So this evening we're going to discuss the ethical human and the emergence of ethical thinking and practice and those kinds of topics. Uh, this event forms part of the Shape of the World series held in the run-up to the LSE Festival, which is going to be a week-long series of events taking place from May the 2nd to Saturday 7th, March of 2027, or 2020, sorry, 2027 would be far away. Uh, it's free to attend and open to all and exploring how social sciences can make the world a better place. The full program will be available online from January 2020. Okay. <clears throat> so the event and our topic for this evening is the ethical human. So we're going to be looking at the concept of the ethical human, thinking about ethics uh, from various points of view, including philosophy, comparative psychology, developmental psychology, and try and get some clarity on, on these kinds of concepts uh, using this kind of expertise. So we've got some experts with us to help us do that, who I'll introduce now. So this is uh, Zana Clay, who is Assistant Professor of Comparative and Developmental Psychology at Durham University. Uh, Simone Schnall, who is Reader in Experimental Social Psychology at the University of Cambridge. And Philip Pettit, who is LS Rockefeller University of University Professor of Politics and Human Values at Princeton University and Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at the Australian National University. So given that we are the Forum for Philosophy, I'm going to take the privilege of starting with philosophy this evening. Um, so Philip, would you mind getting us started with some introductory words on ethics? What's a good working definition? What are we worried about when we're worrying about ethics? Okay, that's a big ask, but there you are. <laughs> um, I guess the two things I... I Associated with ethics, first of all, is obviously ethical behavior as we think of it, which is broadly altruistic behavior, behavior that is not just in your own interest, or maybe, of course, but in the interest of other people. But of course, and that's, I suspect, a theme that's going to come up in these discussions, um, it doesn't make you an ethical creature just to behave in an altruistic way. There's evidence of altruistic behavior across various species apart from ours, I take it that human beings are ethical in a distinctive way. And with us, it's not just that we at least aspire to behave ethically or altruistically. We also have standards and have a sense of being required by these standards to behave in that way. And so there are two levels. There's ethics as a sort of regulative way of thinking, and there's ethics as the behavioral counterpart of that uh, way of thinking. Now, it's not that when so to speak, we are ethically minded and behave ethically. It's not as if we go around just checking against the standards. I think often we behave ethically just out of habit or second nature or training or background or instinct, instincts that I think we'll see are shared with, with other species as well. But we have these standards always there as a check. And if you know we behave in a way that doesn't correspond to them, uh, I think a red light goes on. Hopefully it goes on for ourselves. I mean, that if I do something, God, that's really unfair. You know, it strikes me, the red light goes on, and then I can regulate by the standard. And if I, the red light flag doesn't go up for me, somebody else is going to raise it, as in, that's not fair. And even, as we know, three-year-old children will hear about that too, I imagine, already say, as we're all aware, you know, that's not fair. You know, they have a sense of fairness. So I would say the behavior and the standards are two aspects of being an ethical creature, and certainly human beings in that sense are ethical creatures. 
And so do you think the sort of the philosophical tradition is addressing both of those kind of things equally or is it tend to be more bound up with the latter, more kind of reflective? I think there's been, uh, I think in philosophy, the general tendency has been obviously to focus on on the standards. Where do the standards come from? Are they just expressions of our emotion, our background? Are they, do they have a right and a wrong about them? Uh, what's the source of authority? So that's been a lot of the focus in philosophy. But of course, there's also been focus on uh, within philosophy in what um, we call philosophical moral psychology, which is the story about how exactly if we do have standards, do they connect with how we behave? As I said, it's not as it were as if we behave like actuaries, you know, checking against the standards as we go along. That would be horrible in a way, wouldn't it? Dealing with someone, you know, you ask them to do your favor and they say, let me just check to see if I'm required to do that. I mean, you know straight away, this isn't a very nice person, you know. Actually, to be ethical people, in a way, it's important that we generally don't think of the standards, but they have to be there in the background, it seems to be, uh, and to put up the flag when we're drifting from those standards, or for other people, of course, to get us to regulate ourselves by pointing out that the flag has gone up, that we're behaving unkindly, unfriendly, or whatever. And are there any sort of dominant examples of ways of thinking about this within philosophy, so big feuds between rival ways of theorizing over this? Or Well, uh, the focus on standards in particular, there's a big divide between those who are, as were, well, the old words used in the 18th century were sentimentalists and rationalists. I mean, where a sentimentalist think of moral standards as just expressions. There's no right or wrong. They're just expressions of how we feel, whereas in general, rationalists or cognitivists, the various names, think of the standards as answering to facts of a certain kind. Now, of course, you could be uh, a cognitivist in that sense because you are religious and thinks there's a fact about what God has required us to do or you could be a more naturalistic type of cognitivist and there, there are many varieties of that but yeah Okay and so do you think humans then we're talking about the ethical human there's something intrinsically morality seeking about us or ethical do you think we're sort of bound to behave in these ways or is there space for much more amoral kinds of communities and individuals? Well, I, I guess I'm in the school of, uh, that thinks of standards as uh, being deeply anthropocentric. I mean, they reflect our nature, but they really have a grounding in our nature of a kind that uh, ought to force a certain convergence between us. It's not as if everyone has their own ethic. And uh, in in a recent book called The Birth of Ethics, I'm sorry, I'm sorry to advertise, but... Uh, um, in any case, uh, <laughs> this book is available outside after, and you can get a signed copy. But I will remind you of this before you leave the auditorium. <laughs> In that book, I, I tried an approach which I think of as naturalistic and you know fitting very much with the sciences, um, but not quite traditionally philosophical, and. Um, what I try to do in the book with ethics is what, for example, economists do with money. I'll explain in a moment. Or lawyers do legal theorists with law. Because when you ask an economist, what's money? I'm thinking of that as corresponding to what's ethics. What the economist will tell you is, well, imagine a society without money, a barter society. And then they will tell you about the problems that people have exchanging, assuming they're human beings like us, creatures like us, the problems they're going to have in making exchanges, and then we'll tell you a story about how natural adjustment to those problems is going to mean that a certain commodity that it turns out a lot of people are interested in, like gold, 
or cattle or cigarettes, you know, as in post-war Germany, becomes a commodity everybody wants because they realize that they can always trade with it. And that, that's a, the first step in a long story about how you might get money emerging. And then at the end of that, the economist says, you wonder what money is? It's the thing that fills that sort of role. It plays a role of uh, enabling us to exchange where goods with one another. I'll go to Law Herbert Hart, probably the best book ever written on the nature of law, the concept of law in the 1960s. What is law? He says, well, imagine a society without law. And he, again, postulates human beings like us, but without the uh, structures we would describe as legal. And then he explains how they would face various problems of coordination, and the natural adjustment of those would be to have general norms of behavior, but also norms for how to interpret those norms, how to apply them, how to determine that someone has broken one. And he tells us so, and then he says, now, does that look just like what a legal regime is? You know, and he invites you to identify what we actually call law with what would emerge in that counterfactual thought experiment. Something almost what fatalistic. What I to do is to do a similar thought experiment with ethics. So can, how does that work out with ethics then? Um, is, is ethics going to turn out to be like money, something that... Uh, well, that no, we... it's not like money, you know, <laughs> but, but the, I, I believe myself. Now it's, you know, philosophers do deal in hypotheses as well, you know, except they die in a different way from how, not in the laboratory, but in the, in the laboratory of continuing discussion. Um, in the sort of hypothesis of the story I, I, I tell, language is very, very important. Now, the two features that make us ethical, I would say, uh, that show up, so to speak, in, in, uh, that reveal our ethical nature, and that I don't think you see generally in animals, are, first of all, because we've got standards, uh, we are creatures who often are attracted to X, but actually we think we should do Y, right? The traditional contrast between the flesh is weak, the spirit, or the spirit is strong and the flesh is weak. Or is it the other way around? And, you know, the standard can come apart from behavior. That experience of conflict between, let's call it, between values and desires. And the other feature is that not only do we have a sense of what's valuable as a thing for us, just attractive to us, but we also have a sense of holding one another responsible to our values, as in, you can't do that. You know, you shouldn't have done that. You could have done otherwise. That's the second, that's the responsibility aspect of, and they both involve standards interacting with behavior, as I said at the beginning. Now, the story I tell very briefly, because I know we've um, restricted time, is makes language crucial, and what I argue, say, on the first theme, this really is very telegraphic now, I hope it's uh, not unintelligible, I argue in the first theme that creatures like us, and I draw on psychology and, and indeed evolutionary theory to paint a picture, a realistic picture, I think, of creatures like us who come on language for the first time and use it merely for transmitting information about their, about their respective situations. And what I argue on the first theme, the value theme, is that creatures of these kinds, of this kind, are going to have a big interest in making themselves credible to others, you know, so <clears throat> communicating what they desire, for example, in a way that the other can really uh, be persuaded. And I argue that the ways in which creatures like that would tend to do it is by talking about their desire, communicating with their desire, in a very special first-person way. Like I might talk about our Claire desires and 
the prediction means she do such and such. You say, you complain to me, she didn't do that. You were wrong about what she desires. Well, I can say, I, I must have got her wrong. You know, the evidence must have misled me or she must have changed her mind. But if I say to you, you ask me, so are you going to watch the rugby game, you know, between England and, and New Zealand on, is it Saturday, whenever? And I say, God, yes, that'll be fun, you know? And then it turns out I'm totally indifferent to it. You say, yeah, you, you, you let me know that you desire that, you know, in a way that I could rely on you as were to be there to watch it with me, say. And you didn't, and I say, God, I must have gotten myself wrong. You can't do that. That's what I think of as an avowal, and I argue these creatures are going to not just report their own desires, but have a real interest in avowing them, speaking with authority for themselves. And then I say, any creatures like that are going to have the following experience. They'll often have avowed one desire, for example, the desire to help you move the apartment on next Sunday, and here they are lying in bed with another desire, not the desire they avowed, an experienced desire, which is to stay in bed, you know, and, and have a nice um, um, restful Sunday morning rather than going and helping you. And that's a conflict now, isn't it? Very like the conflict I described at the beginning between value and desire. And this picture, it emerges, or would emerge in these creatures as a conflict between the desire you avowed when someone asked you, you know, would you mind, I said, that'd be great. I absolutely love it, I'll be there. And you don't do it. That's, that's exactly a sort of conflict. So I argue that the practice of making yourselves credible to others that these creatures would have would lead them into reporting about themselves in this especially credible way because they put aside the excuse, I must have gotten myself wrong. That opens up a difference between the desires you avow or promise, if you like, and the desires you experience, and thereby you edge in. Creatures like this are going to edge into the experience of values conflicting with desires. So that's the one story. And then I tell a, a different story about why, again, based on language, on why we would hold one another responsible. And the core of that story, basically, is this, that if we're linguistic creatures like I've described, we depend on one another, we depend on one another to live up to, the avowed, the desires the other avowed. I mean, we make our plans around one another's avowed desires and so on. Then, of course, we're going to exhort one another to act appropriately if it's not clear. So, you know, someone is going to turn up at a an interview, and uh, you know, I know they don't want to tell the truth about, let's say, their past job or something. I say, come on, you can tell the truth. You must tell them. It's really important. They will find out, and you'll be let down. And I say, you can tell the truth. That's exhortation, right? It's not just saying you're, as a matter of fact, you're able to tell the truth. It's trying to help get them there. You know, it's really impatiently um, eliciting or exhorting them to tell the truth. Now, if you get a story, as I develop, in which creatures of this kind have got to be mutually exhortatory, you know, forever, you know, pressing one another to do things they rely on the other doing, then if the other fails to do it after the event, the natural thing to say is not to give up on the other person. I mean, that would actually lose out on future exchange and benefits, but to say, you could have done otherwise, you know, which is like saying before it, you can do it, you know, which is exhortatory. Well, I think when you hold someone responsible, it's like 
retrospective exhortation. You know, you could have done it. You know, I'm not giving up on you, you're saying. You know, you are someone who can be brought around to the standard. So that's the idea, this counterfactual story. Now, as these creatures, like us, um, they come on language, as we know our forebears obviously did. And within the linguistic practice, there's a powerful urge to move to avowing desires, not just reporting desires. I'm just focusing on that aspect of our psychology, which means that there's going to be the experience of conflict, like between value and desire, and there's equally going to be a practice in which they exhort one another, and therefore to live up to what they have avowed, to live up to the standards that they more or less commonly avow, and then there's going to be a practice of exhorting, not just of exhorting one another, but of holding one another responsible, blaming one another when you fail to live up to those standards. So that's what I think of, that's the sort of package that in this little thought experiment I suggest, well now, isn't that an account maybe of where ethics comes from and what ethics is about? It's really interesting, especially the sort of parallel case with uh, law and economics and thinking about a sort of hypothetical development. I'm wondering, just to open it up, uh, probably less relevant in the, you know, language in the case of the, the non-human apes, but in work with children or adults, is language and attitudes towards linguistic conventions and maybe credibility, are these things that play sort of key roles in your thinking about these topics? Um, I find language... Uh, really fascinating in the context of morality and in a different way to what Philippe mentioned, uh, namely in the context of what's been called the, the social brain hypothesis. And that's uh, Robin Dunbar's idea. Uh, this is a philosopher uh, uh, um, who proposed that that language is a tool to help us connect to people when when the group is uh, getting too too large, too large to actually have direct contact with other people, and therefore draw conclusions of whom you can trust. So language comes in when we basically have to talk to each other about you know what what Philip has been up to, you know that guy or she. So so it's all about gossiping and trying to figure out you know who's the good guy or especially who's the bad guy because that's where it really matters. And language has been, Dunbar has proposed that that's what language is for, to exchange social information about other people and about their moral character and what they're up to, and especially if they're up to no good. And it's called a social brain hypothesis in part because so much of the brain is dedicated to keeping track of social relationships or to deal, you know, making sense of social relationships. And uh, the proposal there is to say that, well, one reason why we as humans have such big brains is because we have such elaborate and complex social relationships <laughs> where we have to make sure we keep track of whether uh, somebody is a good person or a bad person. And with all of this, uh, there is negativity bias. In general, we know as psychologists that um, negative information weighs more heavily than positive one simply because it indicates that there's a problem. So when something you know, is negative in whatever way, negative emotions, for example, tell me that if I feel sad, there's a problem. If I feel angry, there's a problem. If I feel you know, any sort of negative state that tells me there's a problem that needs fixing, as opposed to 
feeling good, feeling reasonably happy and content means that, well, by definition, it's all good. So when it comes to, to moral character, there's a massive negativity bias there as well. So, so we're very alert to who's a bad person or even who might be a bad person, even if there's a slight chance. It's a very sensitive system as well. It's been called the smoke detector principle, better safe than sorry. You know, if there's any suspicion that somebody's up to no good, better be safe than sorry. Mm. And that's where it comes back to language to say that we use language to make sure we're all on the same page, that we all know whom to trust or whom to stay away from. Mm. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I mean, it's interesting actually talking about brain evolution because actually there's a lot of discussion from the biological sort of, you know, obviously about the evolution of brain size and actually the current hypothesis has really sort of discredited the social brain hypothesis and the, the leading one is actually that it's to do with um, feeding ecology and sort of the evolution of, of sort of dexterity and foraging situations and it's actually there's some really interesting models that are now suggesting that although it seems like a very obvious one, um, the actual data is suggesting it's more to do with um, being able to do much more complex forms of extractive right. foraging which then give you these opportunities to manipulate your world better and so on but um, just so so I think right. it's, it's a work in progress yeah yeah, yeah. Interesting. I mean the, the, the sort of, there's a, a number of massive debates going on about right. why we've got so, such big brains so what about language then yeah. where does language fit in well I think that I think because that's linked to the yeah, yeah sure I mean I think yeah. so I, th- I think it doesn't immediately link to primate brain size evolution if you look at it in a bigger picture because uh, if you look at relative brain size in lots of different species of primate rather than just humans you know we just fit into a model so I think it should be an explanatory model that can predict not just our own brain size evolution but other primates as well so um, but I do think I mean I think it's really interesting and I do I certainly studying social cognition and social processes in primates I can see how much it matters to them and I think for me language um, is again um, sort of building on what you said and Philip said um, and a sort of bringing in uh, sort of the Mike Tomasello like approach to language is this idea that language is a cooperative act. It's about informing and sharing information voluntarily with others. It's about providing information almost as a pro-social behaviour that you're you're giving information, valuable information, information that you think someone else might need or want to know to them voluntarily. Whereas most other animals. Um, um, are actually what we think of as pretty good at, um, at sort of eavesdropping, figuring out what um, they could extract from someone else's signal. But the, the kind of intent to inform, while it's not entirely absent, certainly it's present in some cases, it's much more limited. And so to me, I think language in the same way builds upon this idea of, of these kind of social contracts of, of, of giving giving information to others and, and building in these sort of, these, yeah, these standards of, 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 of uh, cooperating, I suppose. So I think that's one thing to me. And then I thought, and something else is interesting, I thought about what you're talking about, counterfactual thinking. So like with children, counterfactual thinking is being able to think of um, what you should have done or could have done in the past, sort of um, basically thinking of alternative outcomes to um, future or past events. So I, if I had have done that, I could have done this. And it's something that we do all the time. And I think it's, as you say, very involved in the way we think about moral standards or what you should have done or could have done. And actually, we know that children really, really struggle with counterfactual thinking. It's something that develops really quite late in children. Um, you know, it's something that over, only sort of about, you know, sort of six or seven, they're starting to actually be able to think conceptually about 
if I had have done this, this would have been a different outcome. And it's surprising how late it develops for children. And it's almost as if they children seem to have the initial moral standards that they're willing to apply before they're able to think conceptually in these more ethical, perhaps more ethical ways, truly ethical ways about applying standards. But I find it interesting that children seem to, even from around the age of three to four, have the motivation, say, to punish, to protest, to instill social rules that they think are you know, normative in their groups. Uh, but they, they still need to get to a later stage where they're, they're truly able to, to think more flexibly about um, future or past expectations of themselves and others. So, um, and then primates, um, yeah, they're, they're somehow, yeah, they're not completely absent from these capacities, but it's certainly not, um, I don't think primates can think counterfactually. It's, it's uh, interesting because yeah. it seems like we often do yeah. try and teach children ethics in quite a counterfactual way. So, you know, when you're explaining punishment or why somebody doesn't get to do the thing they really wanted to do. It's like, mm. Well, if you had of yeah. given it's difficult to the for children to think in that yeah, way, but to think in abstract ways. And much. Most children, well, the yeah. golden rule. Yeah. I mean, yeah. how would you feel if he had done that to you? Exactly, yeah. That's a it's surprisingly late developing, yeah. I think, compared to some other aspects of, of child development. Even though they seem to be able to instill, pro, you know, they can... Yeah, they can think about what, you know, basic normative rules, I think they can start understanding those. But thinking of alternative outcomes is, seems to be quite a complex task, actually. So I find that interesting, yeah. No, it's fascinating. We might just see if we have a few questions just early on now. Anyone got a burning start? Okay, we've got one here. I'll take them in batches, so maybe if you have two or three, I'm happy to do that. One with the red top here. Um, so just if you... <laughs> And then maybe can you, there's a woman or somebody in the red shirt up there. Thank you. So I still don't, don't really get what would be lacking if we had laws, uh, means of exchanges, and language, but no ethics. What would be different? Thank you. Okay, thanks. And then I did this. Uh, question here. We've got two there, and then I'll, we'll just we'll treat them together. Can you just maybe go around to this person in the middle? Can you stick your hand up just so they can see you? Yeah, these two hands here. Thanks. Hi. Uh, my, I have a, I had an argument once with one of my friends about um, whether or not you need evil for good, and I was wondering what your thoughts were on that. Okay, thanks. I have a don't worry, I'll start with yeah. you not? You need evil for good. Evil. But then you need evil for good. Okay, brilliant. Thank you so much. So just to summarize for the podcast and then for anyone who didn't hear, so the first question was about law uh, without ethics. So can we have, you know, function systems of law devoid of ethical thought? Uh, another about whether evil is a sort of necessary condition of good, whether we can understand the good without the evil. And then the last case, whether we should be thinking of religious and irreligious morality as sort of separate kinds of things. So feel free to jump in on, on any one there that you'd like to take up. So I think... Yeah, go ahead. Perhaps I can also respond to... Uh, oh, yes. Dan and Simon at the same time. Um, so on, let's go in the backwards direction. On the theistic, non-theistic, I mean, I do think that is a, it's a big divide. I mean, there's a difference in metaphysics between those people who think there is a God and those who think there isn't because a different reality, so to speak. Now, 
Of course, that's going to lead to different interpretations of ethics. Um, my own thought is this, that the story, if the story I told, you know, reveals something about ethics, it doesn't necessarily undermine, so to speak, theistic ethics. It will explain only why we develop what I call the ethical toolkit. You know, we develop the sense of we can have values that are different from our desires and we can hold one another responsible and be held responsible to our values. That's the ethical toolkit. Those two big conceptual developments. And uh, that can be given a theistic interpretation by those who take that sort of uh, theistic view. On evil um, and good, I actually, yeah, I don't know if I want to get into this, but I, I do think it's a really interesting topic. My own view is that um, in order for someone to count as doing good in many areas, uh, for example, helping someone, you really have to be fairly robustly disposed to help them. You know, you don't count as a helper just because it suited you, so you help them out, you know. That doesn't get, show you up, so to speak, as being ethically good. We, we expect you to be robustly uh, disposed to do good. With evil, the interesting thing is all you have to do is one fall. If you tell a lie, you know, that's bad, you know, but you're not a, an honest person just because you tell one truth, since it suits you There's to be an honest. There's a word for that now. There's a word for that. It's called the cancel culture. Huh? The what? The cancel culture. Cancel culture. One strike and you're out. Well, I, so, I didn't mean it in a harsh way, though, no, let me say. I, I, I'm exaggerating here, yes, but there yes. is, it's back to that negativity bias, right? That something bad weighs really right. heavily. A bad yeah, yeah. behavior, we consider a bad behavior right. much more diagnostic of the person than a good one, right? Because you can, as you said, you can yeah, do yeah, good okay. things because yeah. you want to appear good, you want others to be impressed. But to do bad things, well, there's yeah. only, you know, the most obvious explanation is you're, you're a bad person. Those in the audience who know the philosophy psychology around this may know about the so-called knob effect, yes. which is related to this. What I've just said, if it's correct, would give a sort of diagnosis of the knob effect, but I'm not going to go into the detail on that. Now, on the, the question about law without ethics, I'm sympathetic, and I think so would Herbert Hart, so was Herbert Hart. I mean, in his story about the emergence of law, it's very important I'm not going into the detail again, but it's very important uh, that people in his little counterfactual genealogy or story would actually develop an internal perspective on the law, meaning they wouldn't obey the law just because they get punished otherwise. They would internalize it as a normative system. Uh, and that, in a way, is giving it an ethical dimension. Now, again, more to be said, but that's, uh, that's the basic point to make. If I can just comment very briefly on what Zana and, um, and Simone had to say, uh, I think it's very important, I'm entirely with uh, Zana, that uh, in any plausible story about the emergence of ethics, it's built on a pro-social uh, disposition in creatures of our kind, which shows up, as I'm sure we learn, in, uh, other, uh, in other primates as well. Uh, I don't think ethics that ever happened without, so to speak, that pro-sociality there. I also think to, um, uh, to, to move on to um, what Simone said, that that's my own view, that ethics wouldn't have happened, so to speak, in the dual sense, I'm thinking of standards and behavior, unless language had come on stream. And um, I think that's really very interesting, the Dunbar story that she gave us of the... Um, the need for language be emerging because of our becoming more complex and geographically spread out sort of 
community where you get trading across hundreds of miles and that sort of thing. But it matches, actually, it fits very nicely, I think, with the line that, um, that, that I sketched myself, because, after all, suppose that we're really interested in, you know, is Claire Moriarty reliable? Do you, you ever have anything to do with her previously? You know, did she, can you trust her? You know, basically. If we're talking about one another in that cosmic way, which is part of the Dunbar hypothesis, as it were, and we become sensitized to how people gossip about others, then of course we're each going to realize this. And it's going to be really important for Claire to try to establish to me that she is reliable, right? She's going to speak for herself. And one way of doing it is she, will, she won't say, well, I think I desire that such and such, and so she lets herself off the hook if she doesn't live up to that. She <coughs> says, yes, that's what I want, or you know, that's what's right or fair, or whatever, indicating, communicating that you have a desire to do that, that you can't, so to speak, get off the hook for failing to manifest by saying, ooh, I must have gotten myself wrong. You can't do that. And so there's going to be, these two stories support one another, I think, quite a lot. If I could just add on the point that, um, that Zana made, I'm entirely, I build quite a bit of Tomasello into the story. And in fact, Tomasello has a, um, has a response to the book at the end, to which I in turn respond. But I'm very much on the same track, or at least try to keep on track. Of course, I don't, I'm, here I'm trying to defer to the empirical scientist, so to speak. Although I, I have doubts about the fact he doesn't make language so central. Mm. I mean, his theory would make good sense of that, but actually he backs off a bit and wants to say that ethics can come on stream independently of language. I sort of, I think that's implausible myself. Well, we'll give you your chance to get your own back now by opening up some of these psychological pictures and then you can come in afterwards. Um, but Simone, you know, those of us who don't work in experimental social psychology, can you tell us a bit about how you approach topics like morality and ethics within that sort of uh, academic culture? Right, so it's, it's very different from philosophy, of course. So we do experiments with human subjects, usually university students, other times people from the general population, and we ask them various questions. So often it's um, survey-based, other times we put them in certain experimental situations and observe their responses. So that's a lot of fun. Uh, and, uh, and also, to, to, so, so that's in terms of the method, but also in terms of the kind of theoretical perspective, it's quite different, I think, in terms of the approach. Or I suppose, <clears throat> at least um, uh, in, in the last maybe, uh, well, 10, 15 years or so, there's been a lot of research in social psychology on morality. It's really been uh, an emerging topic and coming especially from a particular perspective which to some extent leads back to the sentimentalist perspective that, that Philippe mentioned, which is the idea that feelings play a central role when it comes to morality. So certain intuitions, certain gut feelings, and all kinds of other contextual factors that are not driven uh, by, by rational thinking. So all kinds of influences that, that may be more subtle or more unconscious to people. And there's now a lot of research to suggest that those can be really powerful, play powerful roles in morality. 
How do you sort of, how does that come out in experiments? Or I suppose often we think about emotions as being quite private in a way that it's, it's hard to automatically see somebody emoting. So I'm just interested in how experiments kind of... That's right. So one is to, to in fact, as you said, observe somebody as they are emoting, as they're showing certain emotional responses. But another way is to do it the other way around and to elicit certain emotional responses in participants and then see how that, uh, what role that plays in their moral judgments, for example. Can I just add, do, yes. you, do you discriminate between emotions and feelings? Um, emotions are typically considered more specific, mm-hmm. like something like anger, fear, happiness. Feelings are more diffuse and more subtle, or moods, they're mm-hmm. often called moods. Or feelings can be even broader, for example, feeling feeling thirsty, feeling bored, those are, you know, more like bodily sensations rather than emotions. Mm. Uh, and, but as far as I'm concerned, any of these could in principle play a role in all kinds of cognitive processes, including moral decision making. And just to give an example of the kinds of feelings mm-hmm. or emotions that psychologists, including myself, have studied, one one very basic emotion that we've looked at is the emotion of disgust. So feeling physically repulsed, feeling sick to your stomach, feeling that something is just really, really objectionable on a, on a gut level. And uh, we have shown, and now many other uh, researchers have replicated that finding, that, that when you elicit a strong gut feeling of disgust, the physical sensation of disgust, while at the same time asking participants to judge certain moral, uh, moral actions, when they feel physically disgusted, for example, because we sprayed a bad smell in the air or be- because we set up the lab environment such that there was rubbish lying around everywhere, uh, or we got participants to think of a time when they felt physically disgusted and sick to their stomach. So these are all different techniques of, of inducing that sense of physical disgust. So it, with all these kinds of inductions, manipulations, we find that, that it makes people more harsh in their moral judgment. So asking them, for example, how wrong is it to not return a lost wallet that you find in the ground and has a lot of cash in it? How wrong is it to falsify your CV in order to get a better job? Those kinds of questions. If I make you feel physically disgusted because I sprayed fart spray in the air, (laughs) we really do that. Um, And again, that, that kind of work is a lot of fun. <laughs> so, so, so now, and it may sound kind of, you know, amusing, but the point is you want to mix, you want to, in a way, get participants, participants to conflate that sense of physical disgust that comes from something that's completely irrelevant, like that, that smell, and uh, combine it with that judgment they're making. How wrong is it to falsify your CV? How wrong is it to not return a lost wallet. And when you get that experimental paradigm where the two all of a sudden become confused and I feel physically repulsed and I feel sick to my stomach and I feel, mm, this is just, this is really wrong. So it's, it's testing the idea that a, that a feeling can have a causal influence on, on the moral judgment. 
And I should say there, there's been a, a lot of work now looking at physical disgust, inducing ways of physical disgust. Um, you know, it, there's lots of ways of doing that. Some, probably one of my favorite studies that just came out a few months ago is by my colleague Jessica Tracy and her, her co-workers, and they found that instead of increasing disgust and making moral judgments more harsh, you can decrease physical disgust by giving participants ginger pills. So ginger is known to reduce nausea. And what they showed was first that if you, if you show participants <coughs> disgusting photos, physically disgusting photos, you know, mutilated bodies or maggots crawling out of meat, when they had ginger pills, uh, they would find them less disgusting, as opposed to a group that had uh, placebo pills. And this is, I mean, th this is really beautifully done work because it's double blind. Participants didn't know what pill they were getting. Experimenters didn't know what pill participants were getting, and so on. So, so physically disgusting stimuli became less aversive after taking a ginger pill. And by the same token, um, uh, moral transgressions became less uh, less objectionable after taking a ginger pill as well. So it's all, it's, it's that same kind of causal mechanism to see that if you play with that feeling, that, that gut feeling in particular of disgust, which we consider very powerful, then you can shape uh, the, the moral judgment in one way or another. It's fascinating. It's the idea that sort of a contamination occurs between yes. these two kind of this thing about being grossed out or really horrified and then being sort of overly judgmental. It really makes you think about the social consequences of people's living in, in really bad conditions, right? Right, yes. So it is, disgust is an interesting emotion because it is in principle or the way it originated very basic, very physical. It's, it's very embodied. It is all about protecting the body from harm. Right? It's about not eating things that might make you sick because you know they smell bad or they look bad, not touching surfaces that, are, that might be contaminated, not exposing yourself to people who might carry infectious disease. All these situations elicit disgust because it, it's, really, it, it's potentially dangerous. It's potential, it could potentially kill you to engage with these kinds of uh, stimuli. And then, so that's on a very basic level. But when it comes to morality, you take it to an abstract level and say that engaging with people who are, you know, doing who are wrongdoers who are doing horrible things, that's also potentially harmful. So it's a it's a general system to do with avoiding harm and protecting yourself, and and disgust covers multiple layers in that in that uh, goal. So I hadn't necessarily seen these topics as related when we were discussing it in the prep, but it seems that they might be. So we discussed maybe a changing sort of sphere of morality in which now maybe owing to social media and like increased connectivity, people are sort of hyper moral in a way that maybe would be possible to connect to disgust. Uh, could you comment a bit on, you know? Uh, well, there is certainly a sense that people are becoming hyper moral. It, it hasn't been studied a lot, but I think many of us who studied scientifically, but then also lay people one talks to, seem to have a sense that, in the way, given that uh, the way that information spreads, it's much more it, it, uh, bad news or rather bad, 
bad information about other people, rumors, accusations, and so on can be spread very quickly. So people are, seem to be very quick to moralize and to condemn others and to you know, call out others, calling out people, or the cancel culture, these kinds of terms seem, seem to get thrown around quite a bit. So it is an interesting question whether, whether society has become more moralized. I, I suspect that's the case. Again, it hasn't really been studied systematically, I don't think. Uh, but I, I, I think in part, it, and it goes back to the language, uh, to Dunbar's idea of language, that language is about transmitting moral information about other people. So it's not just about transmitting information in general, but especially information that you need in order to stay safe, because if somebody's up to no good, then we all need to know about it. That's why we have, that's why rumors spread very quickly. And it's known, for example, on social media, fake news spread more quickly than factual news or accusations spread more. It's more interesting. It's more fun. It gets shared. It gets the likes. Because on some level, we know this, this can be really critical information. Uh, but that, of course, poses the danger that, well, when all this information gets spread and it's so easy to... to to hit a button or to click a like and so on, then that can have really detrimental consequences for people. That, that never used to be the case. So when, when we, uh, in, in the kind of context in which we evolved where language was just about, you know, communicating with a small group of people, that was fine if, if there were some rumors going around. But now you can reach hundreds of thousands, millions of people by just, you know, the click of a button. I wonder if this is something you see in the in the children case, or as a comparative psychologist, that this increased access to information and sort of onslaught of detail, linguistic or otherwise, is kind of changing considerations at all. Or what do you mean, do you mean in terms of uh, the idea that maybe uh, the way children are growing up now and their exposure to different opinions and sort of the readiness of? I think it's difficult. It's more difficult for children to yeah know how to navigate in these situations, and and I think also we 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 you know there's a lot more overprotection of children in these senses. They, there's less opportunity for them to explore in their own way. Like I think there's a lot more prescribed ways of of doing of behaving morally and things like this. So, for example, I mean, in a very different note, like we're doing research on, um, we're looking at empathy in toddlers in, a, in nurseries in, in the northeast, and we find it very difficult to actually observe it because <clears throat> there's all of the, the, the caregivers um, interfere, like not interfere but they actively teach the children this is how you should you know if this happens you must go and do this and and then they approach and then it it, it means that they actually the children have actually quite difficult uh, time exploring these in these experiences on their own terms and I think they get given a lot of this you know you can't do that you have to do this and, and now you go and hug him and and actually what we find is is that the children um, it's it's mostly given to them in a prescribed form and so I, I find it like I, I think you're right that there's this quite a lot of potential implications about um, particularly in childhood of enabling children to actually learn these things in their own way and, and, and have these different experiences. So I think, yeah, I think it is um, it's a changing landscape quite in quite... I mean, in some ways it's good to be hyper-aware, but I think it also puts a lot of pressure on people as well to be, you know, and, and, and then feel, yeah, subject to bullying and all these sorts of things. So, so do you yeah. find that children show less empathy? Then? Well, I think it's difficult for us to... I mean, it's difficult to know because I think at the moment our data is... is we're, we're, we're trying to, well... 
we're working in different settings and actually one of the reasons I'm I actually do some work in like cross-cultural research now because we're interested in in looking at for example how children respond to uh, distress or needs of others and I think looking only in a western context where you've got active interventions from adults is probably limiting us in understanding this so you know we're trying to look at it in other cultures as well um, because I think uh, because of this one of the reasons is because it's changing quite a lot in um, in I mean it might also be because we're you know we we you know the the caregivers for example want to make sure that you know they look good in our eyes you know we're their scientists looking at the infants and you know the caregiver in the nursery wants to ensure that you know they're viewed well which again comes back to this idea of of reputation of feeling like we have to do this as an obligation to show that we're good caregivers which is perfectly understandable but it just uh, you know it, it's this cycle I suppose of, of of an ethical question or standards or values that that I think you know people are very sensitive to and and and, and you know so it's interesting that we're finding these shifts I suppose. Um, you can definitely see if, if people's moral or empathetical behaviour is better explained by yeah. sort of authoritarian enforcement. Mm. Well I think like we know that for example I know you do some work on moral elevation and like you know developmental psychologists um, we're start, I'm starting to do some work on this as well but children we know have these um, sort of there's evidence that young children have these arousal or affective based responses that seem to motivate pro-social behaviour so for example work I don't know if you know the work of Robert Hepak and in the in like in um, Germany there's some nice work of a colleague of mine who's doing some work on what's called pupil dilation um, so when people observe something that emotionally arouses them your pupils increase in size and so what they found is is when children um, observe situations where someone needs to be helped or they could have helped but they actually didn't help they um, they get a very large increase in this pupil size, the dilation of the pupils, suggesting that it's very actually emotionally arousing for them not to be able to help. And then when they're given an opportunity to either see someone being helped or themselves to help, uh, you find that that arousal goes down. So what it's suggesting is that there is this emotional basis, you know, that motivates pro-social behaviour and, and, and that's probably not learned or, or, or trained or anything that it's a kind of basic um, basic uh, motivation I suppose and we're trying to do similar work with great apes and see you know they also show these pupillary responses to others needs and desires and so on so I, I yeah I think um, I think it's what I, I guess what I think is I think there are these two levels of course you know, having an institutionalised or a taught form of these behaviours will influence them, but I think we also need to give enough space for the behaviours to develop in their own terms. Um, so I guess it's trying to... See, I have to say yeah. I'm very intrigued by yeah. your observation that from what, you, from what you're saying, it sounds like parents are interfering with their children developing... I mean, I think they're trying their very best right, to be sure. good parents, but I do think... But it, uh, ha- it sounds like it has the result of... Imp- kind of getting in the way of the children I mean as an ethologist I'm interested in you know I'm interested in how you know individuals young animals humans or otherwise are developing their own mechanisms Mm -hmm. and I think one of them is is giving them an opportunity Mm -hmm. to do it um, in a way without it being taught to them and I suppose yeah I I I, it's difficult because of course we all want to do the best for children Mm -hmm. uh, but I also think there's something to be said for letting them get on with it right (laughs) 
I don't know what you agree, but yeah. Just going back to um, to Simone's uh, emphasis on disgust. I mean, um, it's entirely plausible, isn't it, that that uh, even if a story of the kind I like, or I don't know that we're differ on that, but that language is important and so on, it's still going to be really plausible that, so to speak, our reactions to other people in correcting them and, expe- and expecting to have an effect, say, in exhorting them, are going to build on systems that already precede the emergence of that set of ideas, like uh, the pro-social tendencies and so on. One of the things I'd really be interested uh, to know whether um, Simon's research has pointed in this direction when you talk about the disgust and the way in which the disgust system, so to speak, interacts with the moral system, as we might say, so I feel disgust, and I therefore am inclined to be tougher in my moral judgment, and maybe there's the opposite effect of some kind as well, I'm not sure. But is this a case of these systems, so to speak, um, um, coming into an unhappy conflict, as you might put it, in the sense that you think of the disgust as producing a, a moral bias. You know, we talk about cognitive biases, you know, as in uh, if you think of a very vivid danger, you rate it as if it's more probable just because it's more vivid. So we fear flying, or might fear flying, more than we do driving in a car, though actually the probability of getting hurt is higher in the car, but the other is more vivid. I mean, that's a bias we know about. I wonder if you could think about the role of disgust generating a sort of moral bias, you know, that the systems are interfering in a way. Right. There See, was the moral systems built on, yeah. on something that precedes it, but obviously they're going right. to be, uh, as it were, not in that system of alignment between the, uh, the emerging moral system right. and, and what I precedes suppose it. it. It sounds like the, on, on a basic le- level the question is, is, is there something adaptive about that Discussed response, or is it useful to layer the moral system onto the more basic discussed system? And well, that's an important question. I suppose on some level, it, it appears that that's ha- that is what has evolved. So that would suggest there's some benefit to it. That doesn't mean it's a perfect system. Uh, so I think. I think a lot of the times, I mean, in these kind of situations where there is, of course, we know about all these cognitive biases, but by the same token, while they may be harmful or uh, unhelpful in many cases, often they are quite useful, right? There are these these heuristics or rules of thumb. They may not always work, but uh, often it's a a reasonably good uh, bet. Could I ask you one question, just to follow on that? So, for example, is there any evidence of the disgust system interfering with a, a pre-moral response, which is one of just sympathy for somebody in pain? For example, if you're disgusted by a situation, does, is there any study at all indicating, does that make people less sympathetic with the person <coughs> who, as were, is arousing well, disgust at the same time as arousing sympathy or empathy? I think it's hard to have sympathy and disgust at the same time. Right. I think disgust is so, it, it repels you, right? It, it yeah. keeps you away from the person. It, it, it's almost the opposite of sympathy. I know. It could and be a very sad result, that, couldn't it? Because, I mean, after all, those who deserve our sympathy are often 
you know, in, in miserable state. Yeah, I mean, what, what about, for example, like situations, say, for example, vegetarianism, mm -hmm. there's a, like a strong disgust reflex of many vegetarians right. towards, you know, animal cruelty or, or, or eating meat, and, but then they can still feel this strong sort of sympathy, I suppose, towards the animals in, in these cases. I just, I wonder about I see, something I like think, that. I think yeah. the disgust, though, is against people eating meat, right, mm. or the action of, e or the behavior of eating meat, that's what's disgusting, not the animal that's disgusting, mm. right? Because you have sympathy or empathy with the animal, that's why eating meat is disgusting. Mm. So it, I think that the two are actually separating mm. the behavior versus uh, the, 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 the living creature that's mm. being harmed and that's suffering. But, but back to your point of is it useful or is it adaptive or is it a bias? I, I, again, I think it's one of these situations where there is some benefit or some quick and dirty way in which it's useful a lot of the times, but yes. then, of course, there are plenty of situations As where it is not. As the are, right. That's what, exactly, that's what these biases are. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think in, in, in the context of the cognitive biases, I'm sure many of you have come across uh, Danny Kahneman's work and... Uh, whenever I talk to people who aren't psychologists, they pretty much all know the book Thinking Fast and Slow. So if you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. So, so there, the, in a way, the punchline is that we have lots of cognitive biases that we are not aware of and that can get in the way. But it's also worth keeping in mind. So, so kind of the, the counterpoint to Kahneman's idea of biases was made by uh, Gerd Gigerenzer. And he proposed that many of these biases are adaptive. There is a point, to, uh, you can construct situations in experiments to say that, you know, people do silly things, but for the most part, these are pretty useful rules of thumb. So, so to say it's a bias and it's, you know, not useful and it, we're doing silly things, that's, that's a bit limiting, I think. Okay, and I wonder, we might move on to Sana's material now and then take sure. a, a Q&A at the end. Um, so, uh, can you introduce us a little bit to the idea of the, the research that you've been doing on sort of um, comparative cases between non-human and human apes? Yeah, sure. <clears throat> so, um, although I've talked quite a lot about children, because um, I'm interested in children and development, um, in parallel I'm also interested in um, sort of evolution, evolutionary processes that might lead to, to things like moral behaviours and, and, and empathy and prosociality. Um, and one of the reasons I suppose I'm interested in it is because I think... I think there's been a sort of quite a strong sort of history, at least in at least in the public domain, of, of viewing animals in this sort of selfish gene concept and, and focusing heavily on sort of competitive aspects of, of animal life, whereas, you know, the humans are often viewed as these, you know, elevated beings and, and you know, some people argue that this is this kind of myth of, of, of human versus animal and, and, and this competitive nature. And I think a lot of people forget that actually um, animals are also... Uh, have extraordinarily kind of complex, rich and social lives which require quite deep um, forms of, of, of pro-social behavior, uh, altruism, uh, empathy, uh, sharing, and actually um, these are fundamentally crucial for many social organisms. And so I, I'm interested in um, trying to unpick, I suppose, some of the evolutionary origins of some of those that, um, those capacities that we find in our own species but also in other animals um, 
So, yeah, I've done kind of quite a lot of work um, thinking about uh, empathy in non-human animals and in children, um, uh, which I'm doing at the moment. And I get, yeah, I've got a few videos to show this you. This is the good bit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, but um, so I suppose in terms of thinking about morality, um, there's sort of two levels really. And I think when we're talking about humans, we're we often think of this sort of higher level, this normative-based forms of morality, of, of ethics and standards and socially accepted values, um, sort of almost impartial forms of, of normative, um, of expected rules and, and expected ways that one should treat others. But I think if you take a step back, actually we as humans, but also many other animals, have this more... Um, uh, immediate form of moral behaviour which is to do with um, you know, your day-to-day -day interactions, so how you treat others in, in, in pro-social ways, for example, how you cooperate and um, my area of research, we do lots of work on cooperation on, um, on pro-sociality on empathy um, so yeah, I just thought it was relevant maybe for the discussion to show you a few um, sort of clips of the sort of things that we do to look at moral behaviour, sort of early forms of moral behaviour in animals. Um, and uh, yeah, so I mean they're not, yeah, so they're a bit different than, um, as I say, these, these high level normative things. And, and to me I'm fascinated in when children start to, become aware of themselves in this, in this sort of more reputation-based world where they have to ascribe, adhere, and administer rules um, that they think are relevant for their, for their social group. Um, and animals like chimpanzees and bonobos um, show basic forms of conformity. Uh, they are aware of, of, of sticking to group-based behaviours. It's not that it's absent, it's just that it's uh, less, uh, yeah, it's less sort of institutionalised, I suppose. But um, anyway, I'll um, show you a couple of videos if Thanks. you want. So, um, yeah, so this up here is uh, what I do a lot of my work on. Um, it's a great ape, your closest living relative. Uh, it's a bonobo. I don't know how many people in this room have heard of bonobos. Yeah? Oh, good. We have good bonobo fans. Excellent. Um, so I'm interested, this photo is showing a number of things that I'm interested in animals, but it's the caregiving context, and I think a lot of sort of the roots of pro-sociality do probably originate from these forms of immediate care that uh, mothers, particularly mothers or caregivers, have for their offspring, and obviously the role that learning um, plays in learning about how to interact uh, socially with others. And so I'm sort of interested in the evolution of these processes and their development in young animals. Uh, including humans, but not certainly not restricted to that. Um, and I work, um, I study uh, chimpanzees and bonobos, again, our closest living relatives here, um, who present to us some quite interesting comparisons with things like um, sort of the basis of morality and, 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 and pro-social behaviours, competition and conflict. Bonobos are kind of interesting because they are um, considered... Uh, relatively empathic, emotionally oriented um, species, uh, less aggressive than chimpanzees. Chimpanzees, by comparison, these are our two closest living relatives, the great apes, uh, chimpanzees and bonobos. Chimpanzees are known to be physically aggressive and, and quite competitive, but they're also extremely good at cooperating. Um, so people are interested in why cooperations evolved in, um, in, in these species, and, and chimpanzees seem to suggest to us that cooperation... Um, is a benefit, it ultimately serves a competitive goal. 
Um, and so I think that's, again, something to think about in terms of morality. But I'm interested, I just wanted to play you a quick video of um, uh, sort of a, a case of, of, of something that I, I, I study, um, is, is how animals respond to others' distress. So things that we showed you in the, you know, I'm talking about infants, human children approaching others in states of distress. And this is one way that we look at empathy or pro-social orientation towards the needs of others, which I think is a key basis for future moral behaviours um, in, 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 in human development and also in evolutionary terms. I think we need to feel affected by others' uh, states and, and a motivation to restore them to a better state. And so um, we look at things like how animals deal with conflict so in this clip, um, you're going to see an older female. She's, she's going to aggress a young uh, uh, juvenile down here. And then there'll be two bonobos who are going to run over and show some what I call empathic responding, um, which serves to reduce the distress of the individual. So hopefully this will work. Uh, let's see. Okay. So that's the aggression. Now watch this little guy. And he runs over and you can see she's screaming. He's kind of hugging her. So it's a bit of a beating. And she's, she's, he's sitting pretty he's still, still actually. He's not showing there. distress um, himself. But the point is he actually moved towards her and he hugged her and you can see he's actually on here. And actually this guy is something you want to just take a moment at him. He's going to approach as well. Watch what he does to her now. So she's got her two buddies, and another key thing that this Nova is doing is he's sitting next to her, this one's hugging her, they're proactively engaging with um, her in a way that, you know, other, um, that we know that is effective in reducing her own distress, and so we consider that an empathic, empathically motivated response because it's generally targeted at socially close individuals with whom you share close relationships with. So we're interested in, in, in behaviours like that. We're also interested in um, behaviours, for example, how animals restore, um, restore um, harmony in their social groups after conflicts. So for example, I'll just play you a quick clip, uh, which again I think is related to sort of uh, basis of, of, of morality and, and, and sort of restoring uh, sort of social calm. Uh, this is a conflict, and you'll, show, you'll see a small reconciliation. Uh, so one individual is very upset, and then another one who's aggressive will actually reconcile the conflict and restore the social calm. This is a young kid who's very upset. He's going to attack. That's the Actually, this is what chimps do. They touch each other's genitals quite often. Um, <laughs> but the point is, she initiated a, a, a restoration of a social relationship. And so animals are motivated to uh, engage with, um, with one another's needs and, and restoring their social world. And I think these are important things in terms of understanding morality. I've got one more, but I can show it. Uh, sure, later. no, there's time. There time. Um, I wanted to show you... Um, uh, well, do you want to see the capuchin cucumber one, or should I do that later? Or do you want to see the chimps with the tools? All right, a vote then. Uh, hands for capuchins. Oh, Couple hands capuchins. there. Capuchins. Okay. Okay. I, and the chimps with the tools is quite yeah. good. 
But um, just because I'm doing a bit of a whistle-stop tour, this is research done by my, uh, uh, my mentor and collaborator, Professor Franz de Waal. Um, they have a nice study looking um, at the kind of evolution of fairness and justice, potentially. And uh, there are a lot of different interpretations of why this, um, this monkey might behave as it does in this experiment. But this study was actually looking at whether animals are sensitive to... Um, to fairness and, and whether they're sensitive to um, what we call um, inequity, so um, you know, differential um, allocation of resources. So in this experiment, what happens is this guy, he's learned to trade uh, what we call pieces of cucumber, which he gets here, and he trades them very happily. He gives them back, gives them back. And then um, his partner is sitting over here, and actually, he does a training task, but rather than getting cucumber, this uh, monkey actually gets given grapes. Um, it's exactly the same task, but grapes are way better for pathogens <laughs> than cucumber. Not so different to probably how we might feel if we were given the same. So you can just watch what this pathogen does um, and how he responds to being given a less valuable reward. The key thing is, he, um, he was perfectly happy trading cucumber before his, his, his partner started getting grapes. So hopefully it's working. So he's trading his uh, cucumber, he's giving it back, and now the uh, partner starts trading and gets grapes. You can see this one's notice um, that he's not getting the same reward for the same task. He's starting to look, he's trading his his rock, but he doesn't get grapes, he gets cucumber. Um, <laughs> Hold in there. And the point is, he could actually eat his cucumber, but no, he won't even accept it at all. So he's, uh, he's just not having any of it. <laughs> so anyway, um, so <laughs> the idea here is that this monkey is actually incurring a cost. He's actually uh, foregoing a food reward because someone got more than him. And so I think this sort of shows to us that animals are sensitive to uh, what, they, what they are getting and what they expect to get. And I think these are kind of, although there's a big leap into fairness, I think these are kinds of behaviours of monitoring the behaviours of others and developing expectations that I think animals can tell us a lot about um, in terms of like, the evolution of moral behaviours. So I could, I've got plenty of other videos, but I, I think we should probably uh, move on to other things. I can show you the chimp tool one if we have time later. Um, but it is quite a good, it's quite a good video. But have we got time? If it's, yeah, go ahead. Okay. We can show you, I can show you one more, because um, I like this video. Um, this is a chimpanzee in a, a research laboratory in, um, in Japan. And this is a nice study where basically they're interested in whether chimpanzees understand um, the needs of others. So whether they actually are willing to help others receive rewards for which they don't get an immediate benefit. So again, it's that motivation to, um, to respond to others' needs, which I think forms a basis of, of pro-social or ethical, uh, kind of the early origins of ethical behaviour. So essentially, this chimpanzee in this room um, is given an opportunity to access a tray here, and this tray is full of tools, 
And on the other side of a room is a chimpanzee who needs one of those tools. And the, the key thing is that there are different tools for different um, tasks over here. So if this chimp gives this, tool, this chimpanzee on the other side the wrong tool, he can't actually access certain different types of, um, of rewards. So there's a, there's a straw, for example. There's a, there's a hook that he needs to hook something in. Um, there's a rake. Uh, that he needs to rake something in. So the goal is to ask, does this chimpanzee understand which um, tool this one needs for the specific task? And of course, it doesn't have to give anything. This guy can just sit there with all the toolbox, but you'll see what happens in this video. Um, is he gets given the toolbox, that's the toolbox. He doesn't have any rewards he can get himself. He's just got the tools. But the guy on the other side does need the tools, and he's, expect he's inspecting a walking stick there. Um, again, he's just, um, you know, has no real obligation to do anything with it. But what you'll see is a, li a little hand will start emerging in just a minute. Uh, here we go. Yeah, there's the hand. So that chip needs <laughs> He's got the straw. Um, and importantly, this chimp at the moment can't actually see which, uh, this is an op opaque box here at the moment, so he can't actually see which tool the chimp wants. And so that chimp is quite clearly signaling to him that it's not the right one, actually. So he, he's dropped it, he's waiting, so he's giving him all different tools. So, and actually that's the correct one. So what we find in this, in this task, which is kind of interesting, well, there's three things I find interesting in this, and now he wants to go and see what's happening. Um, Fair. Is when the when the uh, barrier is actually clear and that chimpanzee can see what the other one needs, he's more likely to give him the correct tool first off. So he does seem to understand the specific needs of the other chimp. The second thing is he's actually motivated to help the other one. Uh, for what reason we're not sure. You know, it's something to investigate. And third, I think one key thing here is what's slightly different to what you find in children is what you can see there is there's quite a lot of pestering, like, I want this, please give it to me. We find that chimpanzees will help others, uh, but it's generally when asked. Whereas actually young children are, are, are very willing often to help even when no one specifically asks them to do so. And I think this is quite a key shift in, like, in terms of evolution of things like helping. Uh, chimpanzees will help, but it's it tends to be in slightly more constrained settings, and I think that's a point maybe of discussion for us to have. Um, so, um, and, and I think it intersects a bit with empathy, because I think empathy is a more emotional um, kind of demand that I think motivates animals potentially to respond more quickly because they get affected, like, you know, at this motivational level, um, perhaps more than in such a situation as this. So anyway, there's just a few <laughs> food for thought. I haven't got time to talk too much more. I've got way more videos, but I can't talk about them. So uh, I'll put it back up. Maybe we can post um, some links afterwards. You never know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm happy to uh, do more. I'll put an inspiring picture of the bonobo just because it's nice. So I guess maybe... Um, do, yeah. Would you guys like to comment on any of that content? And then we'll open up for some final questions for everybody. Sure. I think there are two, two things that are very interesting in these videos. I mean... One of them is the fairness one with the captured mm -hmm. monkeys. Um, I mean, they don't, I, I'm, I'm, it seems entirely plausible that our fairness response, which children have very early, and of course they use the word fair and they learn the word fair, and they usually insist on fairness as were for themselves, mm -hmm. you know, as, as the capuchin does. You know, it's, it's because 
he or she yeah. it didn't get, you know, the grape that it's annoyed. I mean, you wouldn't expect it to be annoyed because the other person was getting cucumber. Mm. And, and they don't care grapes. if the other one doesn't it's get it. Doesn't the grape one seemed happy. Mm. But it's still the, it, it seems to me to be the sort of pro-social system. Well, it's not pro-social in this case. It's more pro-me, but in any mm. case, part of the system on which presumably morality develops, you know, as mm. it develops with us. The other one that I think is really interesting, sorry, <laughs> just on, uh, is the, um, the last one you showed. Mm. I think one of the things, mo I have seen this clip bef before and uh, in, I think in your work, but one of the most interesting things about it, to me actually, isn't so much that he hands over, it's not as if he's all that excited about giving, it's the fact that he understands, you know, the, the first one is not reaching for the tool, it, it's clear it can't reach mm -hmm. the tool. So when it's putting out of that, it's not reaching, it's not trying to get the tool, it knows it won't get it. So what's it doing? Well, presumably it's wanting the other person to realize that it wants to get the tool and presumably a chimp to realize that. And presumably it's doing that because it's got some expectation that the other will respond mm -hmm. to what it communicates now. <clears throat> and I think that's actually, I mean, so-called Gricean theory mm -hmm. of language, that arguably is the first sort of stage yeah, into... intentionality, yeah. Uh, intention, in mm. learning, to, because what we do with words, obviously, is we don't... We manifest what we want when we ask someone for something, mm -hmm. and we expect people to respond to that, and that is really proto-communication. Mm. Yeah, it's like perspective taking and recognizing each other, the other's need, and we certainly know chimpanzees are pretty good at that, actually. They, they can understand others' needs and goals and desires. Um, it's not full-blown perspective taking in the human sense, but they've certainly got these capacities. So nice um, to see that sort of stage brought out. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. Simone, did you want it? Yes, I wanted to add to... Um, to the, to the video with the cucumbers versus the grapes. And, you know, of course we can look at it as a basis of fairness or a precursor to fairness and understanding of fairness. And that is, of course, something we, should, as humans, we aspire to. But it's clear from the video it's a major source of misery <laughs> to, have a, to have a sense that there should be fairness, right? Because that, that animal was perfectly happy when he was getting the cucumbers, only by seeing that somebody else got something better, it was not fair. It brought misery, tremendous misery. And it, it raises the question of whether, whether all these moral goals or values we have are necessarily always such a good thing. In this case, it does look like being, a, or I, I would say often, in fact, a fairness relates to the idea of social comparison, right? By definition, you have to compare what I get as opposed to what you get. And if you get more than I do, well, that's not fair, and I don't like it. So there is a bit of, to me at least, a bit of a, what shall I say, uh, a dark side almost to, to this sense of fairness that, of course, we want to strive for, but at the same time, it means that I will often feel like I'm getting the, mm -hmm. the short end of the stick or I'm getting the cucumber. It, it seems likely to me that people might have some questions at this point. Okay, so we've got one over here. If we could pass the mic over. One down here. I'll try and get three there. Uh, one slightly here. And keep your hand up, <laughs> please. Yeah. Uh, this one on the green. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, yeah, far ahead. Yeah, okay. Uh, thanks, everyone. It's been very interesting. 
The thing I keep wondering about is the kind of evolution of ethics. So if you look at societies across time or even space, different societies have different ethical and moral norms. So when we talk about ethical behaviors, who decides what is and isn't an ethical behavior? Because it is often certain societies still have the death penalty. In other societies, it's seen as morally abhorrent. So what even is an ethical human? Okay, thank you. And then take this question as well. Yes, hi. Um, just wonder if there are any major gender differences to the way that ethical behavior develops and is perceived. Is that ethical woman and an ethical man or even within animal, the animal kingdom? <clears throat> Thank you. I'll just summarise them in case they're not picked up for the, for the podcast. Uh, so the first question is, you know, we've talked about the evolution of ethics, but what about changes or differences in ethics over time, space and culture? Are we assuming one specific kind of doctrine of ethics when we start to do experiments or philosophize? And second question, do we see gender manifest itself in our understanding of ethics, whether it's in individuals or kind of communities of women versus men, maybe? Well, I leave the second question to, to others. On the first one, though, it does raise, I mean, we haven't talked about social evolution at all. We've only spoken about natural evolution. And then, you know, the rather abrupt sort of story about language and, and how it can elicit uh, concepts and standards and so on. Um, surely, morality ethics has socially evolved as well, it seems to me. And um, I'm sort of, I hope I'm not a Pollyanna, but I, I'm sort of optimistic on the whole. I mean, we become more inclusive, you know, in the we and the they, though clearly there are massive sort of pressures against that. But, for example, I, I like Stephen Pinker's book, um, you know, The Better Angels of Our Nature, which indicates, you know, that over time, we have, have been, become very, very much less violent. Now, I don't think that's a result, and he doesn't either, of natural evolution but of simply of social evolution, that uh, there are more people interacting with one another worldwide um, than were, was the case earlier. There are um, newer possibilities, of course, of interacting with one another peace, peacefully and so on. And that has brought a new modes of organization. I think that has brought overall, I mean, it's a very up and down trajectory, but I think the, the direction is really positive. That's what I feel. Now, when it comes to comparing societies at any time, I mean, there was a period when you would have said, well, some societies think slavery is okay and other societies condemn it. Isn't this just... Almost no one thinks that slavery is okay nowadays. And I think that's simply by virtue of sort of generalization that, that is intellectually compelling once it's presented to you. And then I'm a progressivist on that. But. Sorry, just because we're quite short on time. But would you, either of you, like to respond, or both of you, indeed, to the to the issue I, of gender? Yeah, I, I, I would Jenny, like to respond to that point of things getting better and you know society becoming better, which I'm sure is true in many ways. But I also mm -hmm. seem to see a pattern, uh, at least anecdotally. I'm not sure how much research is on that. And again, ba back to the idea of society becoming increasingly moralized. So certain certain behaviors becoming objectionable or people becoming uh, people getting condemned for certain things that might not be such a big deal or didn't used to be such a big deal where there seems to almost be a sense that 
almost a bit of a, a, a counter counter um, overcompensation. Uh, that's right, a compensation to say that well. You know, you're wearing a red sweater. Well, red sweaters used to be okay, but now they're out. Cancelled. You're cancelled. I mean, not not in such extreme ways, but where um, where I think people become more sensitive and more judgmental sometimes, perhaps, which which isn't necessarily always such a good thing. So I think one can overshoot a bit in terms of trying to enforce moral norms. Oh, about gender. Yeah, I mean, it's very, very big topic. I, uh, you know, I can sort of, I, I haven't got a, a kind of a, a concrete answer to that. But I do think in, in, in animals, um, there are sort of sex, there are certain sex differences um, relating to um, uh, maybe empathic behaviors, pro-social behaviors, aggressive behaviors. Um, so, for example, we know that, you know, generally, at least in, in um, say, chimpanzees, males, generally are um, dominant and, in, and aggressively dominant and so they can instill sort of justice, you know, or justice or, or, or instill their um, them, they can use their social power um, in, a, in aggressive forms that females don't generally do. And for example in, in bonobos, the other relative uh, females exert power but do so generally in uh, developing social relationships and showing different forms of sort of more investing in developing um, more peaceful relationships in general. They're not using aggression in the same way. So I think, I think there are sex differences in animals to do with aggressivity and how they might in, in, in sort of um, uh, impose that in terms of power dynamics and, and so for example chimpanzees have a, quite an interesting behaviour called policing uh, which is uh, where uh, male chimpanzees dominance uh, will often actually if there's a fight going on they will run in and actually sort of break up the fight and it seems to be relatively impartial so they don't have necessarily a you know they're not vying for either side so I find it kind of interesting that um, you do seem to get this interaction between sort of physical power and the ability to impose on others um, sort of uh, in, you know, in, 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 in a social intervention. So I think, um, I think there are certain differences, but I, it's, not, it's different from what you're asking about gender, because I think uh, you know, I, I, I'm working with animals, so it's a different kind of concept. But um, I also think that there's still, and I don't know if you have words to add to that, but it's still very open whether women are truly more empathic and more emotional than men. I think it's a kind of common uh, assumption, but actually a lot of the data is very, very mixed. And I think, um, I think we shouldn't assume that women are more morally elevated. Or, or I mean, I'm not saying that the people do, but they might think that women are more empathic than men. And I have to say, from my own data, I have no evidence that the great apes are, uh, are showing these trends. So I don't know if you have some data in, in, in the humans that you want to allude to, but I sort of think we need to really look at the data rather than, you know... Um, I think making. not so much in terms of empathy, but mm. what's, known, what's well known for aggression is, mm. for example, that uh, males tend to be physically aggressive, mm. but w uh, females tend to be more uh, verbally aggressive, mm. for example. There's different types of aggression, mm. And it's not that one gender yeah. is more aggressive than the other. It's just different ways of dishing out the aggression. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> not necessarily an ethical one, but it is my duty at this point to say that we are out of time. Oh, so I might ask you to thank our speakers uh, for their excellent contributions. <laughs> <laughs>